1: Maria is a mother to an 8-year-old girl on the spectrum, a licensed mental health counselor, and the founder and CEO of Autism in Black, Inc., an organization dedicated to raising autism awareness and reducing the stigma within the Black community. Maria is also a coach, speaker, advocate, and author. She's been featured in Forbes, The New York Times, and Counseling Today, and her book, The Self-Care Affirmation Journal, was published in 2018. In today's conversation, Maria talks about the challenges of receiving her daughter's diagnosis and explains why she started Autism in Black. As a parent-child interaction therapy intern, she describes how PCIT can benefit families who are dealing with behavioral challenges. We discuss how religion, misunderstanding of autism, and distrust of the healthcare system contribute to misdiagnosis. We also discuss the lack of research on autism in the Black community and why this problem leads to culturally insensitive evaluations and treatment plans. Maria shares some of her experiences as a Black parent, including dealing with stress and being judged according to stereotypes. In this episode, discover what's possible when you start to examine your own biases. For more information about Maria and a link to the study she mentions, please visit our website, autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at autismpodcast, join our Facebook group, Autism Knows No Borders, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project. And now, I present you... Maria Davis-Pierre. Hello, Maria. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. We have a lot of topics to cover today, but first, could you briefly introduce yourself?
0: Sure. So I am Maria Davis-Pierre. I am a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida, and I am the CEO and founder of Autism and Black, Inc. Our mission is to support Black parents who have a child who is autistic. We do that through various means, empowerment, consulting, special education advocacy. And then on the flip side, we also train organizations to be more culturally responsive to the uh, Black disability community.
1: Great. And you also have a daughter on the spectrum, correct?
0: I do. She is eight now.
1: Okay. Tell us about her. What are some of her interests, what she's like?
0: She loves to read. She's also very athletically inclined. I don't know where she gets that from. It's definitely not me or her father. (laughs) (laughs) So she plays tennis. She actually went to the U.S. Open in 2019 with her tennis team. She plays soccer. She does bowling. So yeah, she's, she's in a lot of sports.
1: <laughs> nice. Lots of energy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does she receive any services related to her autism?
0: In the school, she does. She gets speech therapy as well as OT. She is in a gen ed setting, but she does receive special education supports within that general education setting.
1: Okay. So when she was diagnosed, had you heard of autism before? Were you already in the field?
0: Yes, I was already a therapist prior to having her. So I was very well aware of autism and what it was. Around six months, I noticed a lot of sensory things within her that kind of was like, okay, she may be autistic. (laughs) And I told my husband and my husband was like, you know, diagnose your clients, leave my kid alone. (laughs) (laughs) I did that. And then at 10 months, she actually regressed in her speech. So she started to actually forget words that she was previously saying. And at that point, I knew that she needed to to go in for some evaluations.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. What was that process like for you and your husband when you received the diagnosis?
0: So the process of getting the diagnosis was extremely difficult. As you all know, I said I'm a therapist. My husband is actually a physician. He's an internist. So we are in the field, you know, this is what we do. And it was still a very tedious process. We started with our pediatrician who gave us a referral to a program that many may, uh, may be familiar with, Early Steps. Before three is early steps, after three is child find. So you go to the early steps, and you know you have all of the healthcare professionals evaluating your child on different developmental milestones. And they did that and they agreed that they thought she was autistic, but because she wasn't three, they did not feel comfortable giving her the diagnosis. So they sent us to a developmental neurologist which is extremely hard to find. And we went to them. They gave us a lot of DNA testing. They did brain scans. They did all of this, you know, ruling out. And then he also agreed that she was autistic, but again, wanted to wait till she was three. Uh, By this time, I was just frustrated with the process because we know early intervention matters. And I wasn't going to wait a year and a half for them to just say she's still autistic, you know? Mm -hmm. So I actually... Uh, sat in his office for a week. I told him, I'll be here, you know, when you open up and I'll be here when you leave and we're going to get good and comfortable with each other, but I'm not going to stop until you give my child you know, her paperwork, because we know that having an official diagnosis also opens you up to certain things that you're not going to be able to get without the diagnosis. So it was kind of leaving us in a limbo of, we do know she's autistic, but we don't want to give her the diagnosis. So you can't really get too many interventions because have the diagnosis and insurance is not going to cover anything if there's no formal diagnosis. So after a week of waiting, he did give me that paperwork so I could uh, get her enrolled in some stuff.
1: What was the hesitation? Like I've never really heard of people waiting until three years old specifically.
0: For them, they were saying, um, we want to see if she's going to grow out of it, which we all know that if you're autistic, you're autistic. Um, Mm -hmm. There's no growing out of it. I think more so when dealing with physicians, it's a lot of, we don't want to be wrong. So we're just going to wait it out and make sure. And at that time, three was the age that determined if you could get the diagnosis or not. You know, prior to that, it was five. So we had come some way with three, but no. I was like, if we all are agreeing on this, then she needs her diagnosis.
1: Mm-hmm. And this was eight years ago. So how has this changed more recently? Because sometimes you hear people of getting diagnoses at 18 months.
0: Yeah, now, you know, they're getting it earlier, which is great. There's still some hesitation, depending on who you're your Physician is or who your doctor is, there's still some hesitation. Some haven't quite caught up. And then we all know that with um, Black children, there's a high probability of misdiagnosis as well. So we're still trying to, you know, dismantle that as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that specifically the area of misdiagnoses and how that affects the child's life later on. But maybe first we can talk about the stigma of autism within the Black community. Mm. So, first, could you explain what the stigma is? Like, what do people think when they hear the word autism?
0: So, there's a stigma not only within our community, but outside of our community when it comes to autistic individuals who are Black. So within our community, it's a lot of misinformation because the correct information doesn't get to our communities, which is why we you know, have the gap in diagnosis compared to other races. But a lot of it does have to do with misinformation. It has to do with not trusting the healthcare system because of the history of being Black and being um, Mistreated in the medical field, so you know because of the misinformation. When you hear autism, a lot of times people think intellectual disability, so they don't have the right information for them. It's something that's extremely scary. So even hearing the word, it's like you know, no, don't put that on my child. Don't label my child with with this because they don't know really what it is. They don't have the correct information. So it's become so scary that they just put a stop to anything else after that. So it's a lot of misinformation in the community.
1: Mm -hmm. Did this stigma affect you and your family? I
0: don't think it necessarily affected me and my husband because we're in the field, And, you know, advocating for the rights of of Black people, something that we do on a daily basis. So for us, it was more so get her the diagnosis so that she can get certain interventions. For my family, I did have to do a lot of educating. Mm -hmm. Educating on what autism exactly is, giving them an understanding. There was a lot of back and forth of, well, she can do this, so she can't be autistic. And having to explain to them that just because she can do this does not mean she isn't autistic. So it was a lot of educating, setting boundaries, having them understand that there's no shame in her being autistic and we're not ashamed of her. But if that is something that you feel, then you can't be around us because we don't want to put that on her. So setting boundaries and having them understand, you know, how we are moving with our, our daughter and how we're going to raise her in understanding that she's to be proud in who she is.
1: Mm-hmm. We've had a previous guest on this podcast talk about how religion plays a part in Black families not wanting to seek out medical help also. Have you seen that too?
0: Yes. And I'm speaking in general here, but understand that, you know, Black people aren't monolithic. So this doesn't apply to everybody, but religion is an anchor in the Black community. And with a lot of medical mistrust, we do seek religion. As you know a means to solve some issues, so you know there's you go to your pastor, you know you're raised to to know that if you have a problem, you get on your knees and pray about it, you don't talk to other people about it. you go to your pastor with any stressors or any you know thoughts you may have, and they're going to help you so a lot of people have went to their pastors and told their pastors that you know their child is autistic and what do they do next, and some pastors do a laying of the hand ceremony. And for those who don't know what that is, it's when you lay your hands on somebody and you pray that ailment out. Now, we know autism is not an ailment and it's not something that you're going to be able to pray out and then they're cured in that sense. Um, So, of course, when their child is still autistic after that, a lot of pastors then do a church hurt, which is blame the parent. They will say, oh, because of your past sins now this is your burden to bear. And of course, that can be extremely foundation crumbling if your anchor is in your religion and you're looking to your pastor. A lot of parents are already dealing with guilt when it comes to their child's diagnosis. So having their pastor have a confirmation of this guilt can be extremely foundation crumbling. So Mm -hmm. it's a lot of church hurt that surrounds that. Or there's the other end where pastors will say, you know, this is your testimony to do, you know, you, you have to show the world that, you know, you, you can bear this burden. So you don't need to seek out any additional supports because this is what you were put on this earth to do. So it can be, you know, one end of the spectrum or the opposite end with regard to church.
1: Have you done any work to educate pastors? I have. I've done a lot of work
0: because I'm dealing with parents. That's a lot of my main focus, that church hurt is real and understanding how, one, what autism is, why you shouldn't consider it a disease and how it's so harmful and hurtful to actual autistic individuals, the things that are said that may be a part of their community. So giving them that knowledge there, and then also equipping them to be able to better support the parents that they serve as well.
1: Yeah, that seems like such a great starting point, especially if that's the first point of contact that the parents are going to. Yes. Having that pastor refer them out to the services that are available.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Most definitely. And equipping them with, you know, what to say to parents, because for some, it is definitely a grieving process that they're going through. You know, as parents, we have, before our children have even come earthside, we've already made up our mind of who these children are going to be. Um, And then for some parents, when they get that autism diagnosis, it's, you know, foundation shattering for them. They're like, well, I don't know who my child is going to be because a lot of times we don't have representations of Autistic adults who are, you know, uh, thriving and independently living, and you know, can help us in guiding our children. So it's kind of like an unknown, and we're feeling in limbo because we don't quite know what this means, or you know, how does this change my child? So for some parents, it is a grieving process that they have to go through. And of course, in the black community, that first person that they may be going to is their pastor. So equipping them with how to handle that is, you know, crucial.
1: Mhm. And they're receptive to the training that you're providing? Some are
0: <laughs> and some are not.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Are they still thinking that maybe it's uh like a I don't know possession of of spirits maybe or
0: if that or the fact that, you know, it, it can be cured. And, you know, that is not the answer in having them understand the difference of a medical diagnosis that can be cured and actual understanding my brain and how it is neurodivergent and works this way. Mm-hmm. So, explaining it on that level for them and understanding also how it can just be so hurtful to the autistic community when you say these things about curing and shots and all of these things that are just so harmful and that perpetuates the the misinformation that a lot of parents are
1: getting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, Mary, I want to circle back to something you said earlier about people not trusting the healthcare system. And you were actually featured in an article in Counseling Today from last May. And you talked about some Black families not being completely honest with healthcare professionals when talking about their children because they fear that their children will be taken away. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on what you meant by that? I surely can. We know
0: that, you know, there's a long history of experimentation when it comes to black community and medical community. So that leads to a level of mistrust. Also the term social worker. (laughs) You know, hearing social worker and having them come in your home are leaves up some or leads you to have some defenses because historically black people think of social workers as somebody coming in to take my child away from me. They're working with CPS. They're working with the people who are going to take my my children away from me. So if I'm completely honest with them, how are they going to use that information to then take my children away? So sometimes there's a guard up and not wanting to be completely honest because we're not sure of how they will use that information. Even for me, even though, you know, I am under the umbrella of um, clinician, which also includes social workers, marriage and family therapists, and then mental health counselors, they may equate me with, oh, social workers, so what are you going to do and, and take my my child away? So it does come with educating the parent and understanding that Uh, Not all social workers are coming in to take your child, but it is difficult because even the healthcare professionals have come in my home. I've had the same defenses of, oh my goodness, how are you going to weaponize this information that I'm I'm giving you? Because it's very well has happened to where the information has been weaponized against us.
1: Mm, Right. So these parents, maybe they know what autism is, they have. The awareness, but still they choose not to seek out the help. Mm
0: -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. For
0: fear, and you know it's a a real fear, especially for black parents, because we do know that with within working with CPS, there's a higher chance of our children being taken out of the home rather than having rehabilitation as far as doing what is necessary to keep our children in the home. So it is a a fear that is um, valid.
1: Hmm. So it's leading to maybe kids not getting diagnosed early enough or ever.
0: Probably on the medical side of it, but we know that within the school system, if the school sees any deficits or, or gaps or you know developmental delays, that they will you know reach out to start the process within the school system. So on the medical side, yes, most definitely.
1: And can you talk a little bit about what? that looks like at school and how sometimes there could be a misdiagnosis of autism for like oppositional disorder is it oppositional defy
0: yes odd oppositional uh, defiant disorder so within the school, the school has 13 categories. They don't diagnose, they do categories uh, that they'll put your child in to receive special education services. And because of evaluator bias, because of the biases within the actual evaluations, people not having culturally responsive training, it is a higher chance of a Black child being placed in behavior category, more likely, you know, that EBD category that will lead you to a self-contained classroom that is just inappropriate on all levels. So there's a high rate of misdiagnosis when it comes to black children. And they're more often diagnosed with any kind of behavioral disorder rather than autism. So your oppositional defiant, your ADHD, any of those rather than autism.
1: So sometimes you'll see kids like a black kid and a white kid who are showing the same behavior, but then they're actually being treated and viewed differently from the teacher and from the school system.
0: Very differently, and the APA actually did a study with incoming teachers on this exact thing, and they had you know students that they would look at just the emotions on their faces. So there was no talking to be done. It was just I'm looking at your emotion, and I'm going to say what emotion you're you're displaying. And by and far, black students, especially black boys, were seen as showing the uh, feeling of mad. that they're just mad, even though that was not the emotion that they were displaying. So teacher bias is extremely real, just off the basis of race alone. I could be looking at this white child doing something and I see it as, oh, okay, we just need to give them a little more resources. And I could be looking at this black child doing something and it's seen as uh, deviant, as aggressive and puts them right on the trajectory for school to prison pipeline.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Right, when we could be giving them the resources that they need to actually succeed. Exactly. So because of not having a good representation of how many Black people are actually diagnosed, then it doesn't show up in the research and treatment plans tend to be written with a white-centric lens. What are specifically... The differences related to Black culture that make this need to fill the gap important? Like why should we be looking to write assessments from a culturally sensitive perspective?
0: Mm-hmm. So um, there is such a gap because one, Black people may present differently than what is written in the textbook. The DSM mental health system most other systems are completely whitewashed. So the research has been done by old white men on white men. And if I'm not a white male <laughs> and you haven't studied anything other than that, then of course I may display something completely different. We see it with females who are autistic. They don't have a lot of the characteristics that are shown in the DSM, which leads them to be highly misdiagnosed and underdiagnosed with eating disorders, anxiety, other things that they are misdiagnosed with. So the problem is within the systems. The systems are not studying black autistic individuals. The research is not being done. There's a little research that has picked up, but it is not where it should be. So because of this, if I'm not studying and looking at a specific group of people, then anything outside of that does not fit into this box I've already created, which is leading to the misdiagnosis, the underdiagnosis. So yeah, evaluators are not even understanding how culture comes into the room. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we go to our trainings, we go to school, and we learn things, but we don't learn how culture impacts our actual assessments and evaluations and tools and interventions. So then we begin to see things as a deficit rather than cultural. So if I'm coming in and I'm, um, I know um, a colleague was saying that, you know, if a child is coming in and they're repeating a song lyric to you because that's how they're communicating, then that is being seen as a deficit rather than, oh, they're trying to communicate with me. So they're not seeing how the culture comes into the room. I'm from a culture that I'm not supposed to look an adult in the eyes, and now you're marking me as someone who can't look at somebody in the eyes, then you're not understanding how my culture impacts that. So it's just so many ways that culture comes in the room that evaluators are not looking at, and they mark it against the child rather than seeing how culture plays a role in that.
1: Mm -hmm. What are some examples related to Black culture?
0: The one where I was saying the child may come in and start quoting movie titles to so you may say something and then they'll be like, oh, well, this is, um, you know, and they'll just quote from a movie and then be like, you know, all my life I had to fight color purple, you know, and we get that mm-hmm. and we're like, okay, I can have a whole conversation with my family in movie titles and songs. But if a evaluator is not understanding that they're like, oh, this child is being sassy Oh, this child is doing this purposefully. Mm. You know, they're trying to not listen or, you know, whatever they may deem it. And then they mark it as a deviant behavior.
1: Mm -hmm. And what are some other examples of how treatment plans can be modified specifically to adapt to a Black family?
0: One, we have to get away from thinking that we are treatment planning for autism. So one, that's what healthcare professionals have to get away from that. We're not treating autism. We're treating whatever they're coming in with, anxiety, behaviors, depression. One, let's start with that. And then you also have to ask about the culture of the home. And that is one of my my top questions is, you know, are there any cultural traditions I should be aware of? Are there any cultural factors that I should be aware of that can you know, come into the room and hinder what we're doing here so that I can be aware of it and maneuver with that in my scope. A lot of people just come in and they're just, this are the treatment interventions that I know, and this is what we're doing. And when that doesn't fit, then it's oftentimes, oh, this person is resistant. This parent is resistant rather than seeing that those treatment interventions didn't particularly fit with that individual.
1: Mm Hmm. Yeah. That's so important to ask those questions to find out what's important to the family.
0: Yes, most definitely.
1: So what would you say are some specific examples that make the Black parent experience different from that of other cultures?
0: One is... um understanding that we may come from a multi-generational home. So if I'm in my home and my mom is in my home or my grandmother is in my home, they de- they're definitely influencing how I raise my child. And understanding that, again, the mistrust and all of that stuff that I've talked about, those stigmas are coming into play. The religion is coming into play. So there's so much that is coming in Into that room with you that you have to take into consideration. So, if I know that there's a multi generational family unit that I'm dealing with, I'm understanding that there's a lot of information this parent is getting, and there may be a lot of information that I don't agree with that this parent is getting. But if I come from the approach of you have to do what I say, and that's it, that is going to automatically lead this parent to feeling defensive instead of coming from a both and approach. Yes, you can pray. Yes, you can, you know, uh, go to church and speak with your pastor. And you can also do the interventions that I'm coming in here with. So it's a both and rather than an either or situation. Understanding that I'm more likely to listen to the people that I trust in my circle, which are more than likely my friends, family, and my religious supports rather than the healthcare community. Um, So trying to take that away will lead me to be defensive also understanding that that I may be struggling with my faith and knowing that I'm allowing you in here to come in with interventions for my child, but now is God going to see me as not believing or trusting in his will? So it may seem like I'm resistant, but in fact, I'm struggling with you coming in here and how it's now going to be deemed by God. So understanding that there's so many things that can be going on within that home, and you may not be even knowing because it's of course not seen with the naked eye.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Maria, just as you're explaining that, it makes me think about a family that I used to work with when I was living in Oakland, California, and we weren't getting the level of commitment that we were looking for from the family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hearing what you're saying now, I'm thinking like maybe there was something deeper there that I wasn't seeing, that I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes as a clinician, it's, Really easy. I know we try not to do it, but it's so easy to judge and be like, well, this parent doesn't care. Yes. This parent doesn't care about us coming in and we're trying to help them. They're not even meeting us halfway, but maybe there's more that we can be doing because we're the ones stepping into their home, into their culture.
0: Exactly. If I'm trying to decide between Having to pay my bills and and be present for the two or three jobs that I may be working or knowing that I can't get off for every therapy appointment, but I would love to be there. But if I have to choose between rent and eating versus being at a therapy appointment, I'm going to choose rent and providing food for my family. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, individuals aren't taking that into consideration that this parent is just doing the best that they can do with what they're given.
1: Yeah. And even if they can make it to therapy, maybe their mind is elsewhere mm-hmm. and they can't fully be there. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Those are great points, I think, that people can be reminded of. Mm-hmm. So, Maria, you published a book in 2018 titled Self-Care Affirmation Journal, 52 Self-Care Affirmations to Reconnect with Yourself and Develop a Healthy Mindset. So it kind of ties into, we we're just talking about parents maybe feeling burnt out from juggling too many things. And self-care is important you know, for mm-hmm. all parents of children, especially those with special needs. So how do stress and burnout impact the Black community differently?
0: Oh, wow. This is a great question when I love to get, it impacts us differently because as a community, we are not allowed to be tired we're not we're not allowed that we're not afforded that we we're not given the grace we're constantly told pull yourself up by your bootstraps and work through it, push through it. You know, there's the strong Black woman, you know, that we have to be all the time. You know, we have to continue to move forward regardless of what's happening. And of course, we know that we may be under a lot of stress (laughs) because one, being Black in America is just difficult in itself and navigating that. And then all of the other things and stresses that we may be dealing with. So of course, burnout and stress are impacting us at a, a different level, at a greater level, because we constantly are not afforded that grace to be able to deal with stressors before it gets to the point of burnout. And then when you add in the fact that you may be raising a disabled child, or you may be a caregiver for somebody else, we are constantly trying to push through that and be the best that we can be, but not allowing our own selves that, that grace, of course, you know, and then it leads to medical then issues, which are greatly impacted impacting the the Black community, you know, there's hypertension, there's heart, cardiac issues, you know, so all of that that we're dealing with, and then we're still pushing ourselves to push through it, mm-hmm. um, rather than asking for help. Because, you know, if you ask for help, then you're not a strong Black woman, instead of giving us the grace to say, no, being a strong Black woman is actually asking for help and knowing that I don't have to do it all.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you and your husband practice self-care?
0: So I am still working on being able to practice what I preach <laughs> a lot of times, but my husband is very helpful with that. He will definitely make me get away. So I'm very intentional about my self-care time. And I think it's very important to to be honest about being intentional with it because we know that as parents... We don't have a lot of time to ourselves. Add in raising a a child who has a disability, then, you know, that that time just goes out the window. So I'm intentional with the time that I do get. And I do things that I like to do, whether it be staying up later um, just to have quiet time away from everybody and reading a book or watching one of my favorite reality TV shows, taking a nap. I'm one for putting mommy in timeout. I'm like, you know what? I need a timeout. I tag my husband in. takes over just to give myself some some time to refill my cup. So, you know, it's just being honest about asking for help. You know, I rely on my support system to vent to, to come and help when I need it. And then I, I do things that I enjoy doing. I know that social media has kind of giving us a a look of how self-care looks, you know, on the beach with a drink. Uh Um, And while that is great self-care and a form of self-care, the self-care that I promote is mental health self-care. We have to take care of the mental health. We have to set boundaries with people. So I, I have firm boundaries with any anybody who interacts with me because that's how I keep my self-care. You know, no is complete sentence for me. I'm not going to put more on my plate than I can handle. And I don't have to offer you a reason as to why I'm saying no. It's just no and that's it. So understanding that. I'm being careful about who I let into my circle because I'm intentional about what I'm cultivating in my home. So those are the type of boundaries that I'm setting to make sure that I'm also implementing that self-care.
1: Yeah, so important, especially in this kind of work that you're in with advocacy work. It can be draining. Yes. And it can sometimes I imagine feel like you know there's just always so much more to do, so much more to achieve and and get done. So let's talk about Autism in Black. How did you start that? Where did the idea come about? So the idea
0: came about because there were care professionals coming into my home that, one, were not taking my culture into consideration, and two, were not caring about what I may be enduring as a parent. So they didn't check in with me. They didn't see how I was doing. They didn't see if any of the interventions were Working, um, even though I'm with the child the most out of everybody, so I saw that this was a norm. So it was you know I'm gonna create something that's for us specifically because if I type in autism, community uh, organizations, I'm looking at all these websites, and nobody looks like me, and we know how that can feel when I'm in a room with individuals who don't look like me and don't experience. What I experience because being black in America is completely different. People are not going to see autism when they look at my child, they see a black little girl. So, having to have that fine line of raising my child as a black child in America who also is disabled is adding in those intersections that are completely different. So I created a organization that definitely caters to that, caters to the needs of all things Black parents raising autistic children.
1: Mm -hmm. And you also have a podcast.
0: Yes. The Autism in Black podcast. I try to get the information out there as many ways as possible. And, you know, the podcast is is doing extremely well. Um, People are listening.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's just such an important step in trying to break that stigma within Mm -hmm. the community. Yes. To give out that information, make it easily accessible for people.
0: Yes, I try to get to get the information out as many ways as possible and having, you know, guests that we wouldn't normally encounter that are going to let us know insider things that are going on that better equip us to handle and navigate those systems.
1: Mm -hmm. Great. So we actually have a couple of listener questions for you from our audience. Sure. This first one is from Jamil Owens of The Awesome Show, who was actually a guest on our podcast last year. And he wants to know, are we leaving too much responsibility on the table for police officers versus parents regarding police?
0: Um, Is he saying in the sense of preparing them for interactions? Because if that is the question, then no, I don't think so. Because... As a parent, I can prepare my child for every situation imaginable. But if that police officer is not trained on how to interact with Black people first and then individuals, uh, disabled individuals, then it doesn't matter what I taught my child. Because if they're coming in with their own biases, then my child can do everything right and still manage to somehow do something wrong in that person's eye which gives them the permission to do handle the situation how they feel so no I definitely don't think that we're putting too much on officers the onus is not on us as parents it's i I can't prepare my child to be able to deal with everybody's biases they have to do the work themselves so no I definitely don't think so
1: yeah actually I remember something from his conversation that he was saying it's important to educate the police officers. I think Mm -hmm. he was talking about doing town halls with parents of kids with autism to actually explain to the officers what it looks like. Exactly. And what maybe to look out for, whether it's a bracelet or like a card in their pocket, if they're maybe avoiding eyes and maybe exhibiting like a tantrum, that it's not exactly defiant behavior. Mm hmm.
0: And and I think for the police, it's one interacting with black people first, because we're often not afforded the time to even show a bracelet or a card because they're first dealing with this is a black person in front of me. And now I'm going to handle the situation is how I see fit. So one, they have to really be trained on how to deal with Black people first before we get through any of the other intersections, because we know that that is one that causes the most harm. My child is not going to be able to get to anything of divulging any of her personal information if all they're seeing before them is this Black black little girl who is potentially a menace and going to harm me. So we first have to train them on dealing with black people. And then those intersections. Yes, I'm all for training police officers, but they have to want it and they have to listen as well.
1: Are you having conversations with your daughter about safety with police officers? We do
0: have conversations in general with all of our children. I think that's one of the the things with being black is that our children aren't afforded that opportunity to be too young, right? Mm -hmm. Because we know that studies have shown at age two, Black boys are now seen as aggressors by teachers rather than, you know, just little Black boys. And this starts at two. So we're not afforded that. is, Is our child too young a lot of times because we know that this is happening younger and younger every day and it leaves Black parents on a fine line of preparing my child for the reality of what society is or letting them enjoy childhood. So it's a constant fine line that we're battling to try to prepare them for what is to come, but also not wanting to dim that light in them on how harsh society is when it comes to being black in America.
1: How old are your other kids?
0: Five. They're twins.
1: Oh, are they boys or girls? Boy, girl. Oh, cute. Mm Mm-hmm. What is that like for you as a parent, having those conversations?
0: It's a struggle, and I and I'm always completely honest. It's a conversation that is evolving every day for us because we don't know quite what to say a lot of times. How do you explain to a child that the person that is supposed to protect you can also be the person that harms you? You know, especially when you're taught about community helpers in the school and they see the police and they're like, you know, they're supposed to be a community helper, but understanding that it is a real fear for us as a people, because we don't know how the situation can go. I know as a now 37-year-old Black woman that it would be very difficult for me to call the police, especially if I had to call the police on someone who was white, because I would be fearful of how that interaction would go. I'm fearful of being pulled over by the police and what that means. So trying to explain that on my children's level of the community health, Helper can also be the person that harms you is a difficult conversation to have.
1: do you think they understand?
0: No, I do not think they understand on the type of level of course we're looking for them to understand on, which is why our conversations aren't probably as vast as some other parents are having with their children, so yeah i don't I don't think they truly understand on that level. Having a conversation with them on that magnitude about you know, really racism is is difficult to have with five-year-olds and and an eight-year-old who is autistic and has some comprehension issues.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Mm -hmm. Okay, Maria, our second listener question is from Griffin Autism. He wants to know, what stereotypes have you come across that are a false representation of an autistic Black individual?
0: Oh, let's see. Um, I could talk about stereotypes I've come across as a a black parent. As far as autistic black individuals, I'll I'll let them have that because I'm not autistic, so I don't like to speak on something that you know is not that doesn't pertain to me. But as a black parent, I definitely have the biases of going into some place and they automatically assume I'm I'm angry and I haven't mm-hmm. said anything. They're just looking at my face and think I'm angry. Again that like the study I was telling you about about the teacher study, that's also been done on adults as well. And it's the same results. I've been said that I am looking for a check. That's why I want to get my child diagnosed. And I always say this: if there is a check to be had, I do want it because raising children is very expensive. But I'm not looking to diagnose my child for a check. That conversation just is one that gets me every time. Um, I've been asked if I have a husband. I've been asked if all of my children have the same father. These are the biases that we we deal with every day I have to lead with my resume to just to let people know that I do do this work and I have a response that's it's probably better than a lot of what you are you all are offering um, but even if I didn't have the education that I do have I'm still the expert in my child so you should trust that so there's all, always leading with you know what I'm capable of doing just because you are already underestimating me because I'm a Black woman. So yeah, those are a lot of the biases that I've had to deal with. And I know um, from talking to a lot of the autistic individuals that I interact with that they've had to deal with a lot of the same biases as well. And then even more on top of that because of being disabled.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you had a conversation with your daughter about her disability? We have,
0: but again, I think there is, you know, there, the comprehension issue of understanding truly what that is, but it is a conversation that ever evolves with her. And, you know, there's no shame in saying the word autism or autistic in our household. So she hears it all the time. Of course, you know, being autism and black. (laughs) So she's very well aware of it, but understanding it on the depth and the knowledge, what I know, i I don't think so. But again, she very well could understand a lot more than what she is telling me as well. So there's always that. So that's always why I include her in the conversations, regardless, because she definitely can understand and, and, you know, and I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we should always just assume competence. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. even when we're talking about them and they're in the room, like making sure that they know that we're talking about them and not trying to, just whisper out of their own dignity
0: exactly and i think for parents that is extremely hard to do a lot of times for us in our household we definitely take even our twins opinions into consideration i ask them because it is their life and you know i want to get their opinions on things and that is so out of the norm especially in the black community that you know you're sitting there asking them their opinions on on what you, the decisions you're going to make. And I'm like, yeah, because you know, children are to be seen and not heard. And, you know, they don't have opinions. I'm like, they're people as well. So definitely in talking to them, you know, getting their opinions and, you know, just hearing them out. So that's something that we, we always do and cultivate in in our household.
1: Hmm. That's great. Okay. Maria, I'd like to talk about the type of therapy that you provide. Could you explain what parent-child interaction therapy or PCIT is?
0: Yes, and I'm probably not gonna explain it in the actual correct definition or a, a handbook.
1: That's okay. Elevator pitch is fine.
0: <laughs> what it mainly is 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 helping a, a parent work through certain behaviors their child may be having and working through them differently. So it's a type of therapy that the parent comes in for, and you go through a set of protocols that are going to change the way that they look at the child, change the way that they talk with the child. And helping setting boundaries with the child. So we're doing this, we're getting away from a lot of that old thinking of you know how we discipline our children and introducing new interventions. So having conversations with them, making sure that we're talking to them in a way that is not negative or dismissive, which sometimes we do and we don't even know we're doing. So cultivating that relationship of trust with them, making sure we're we're having time with the children every day, again, cultivating that trust with them to help build the relationship to then change the behaviors that the child may be doing just because, again, the the interaction that they have with the parent and realizing how as parents sometimes that how we act then leads the child to have a reaction to to that.
1: Mm -hmm. And who can benefit from these kinds of services? Like, do you offer this to families with autism too?
0: Yes. Yes. Anybody can benefit from PCIT. It doesn't ha- just have to be a child who is autistic. If there are certain behaviors your child is displaying, you can definitely benefit from PCIT if you want to build a better relationship with your child. PCIT. Mm-hmm. So there's the the age range that it is good for, which I think is like up to eight or nine or ten, but I think they're doing studies on how to to do it with older individuals as well.
1: Okay. And it is evidence-based, correct? Yes. Yes, it is. I don't know too much about it, but from the research that I've done, I've read that it is actually like a mix of play therapy and ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis. Would you agree with that?
0: Mm, nah, I mean, it, it could be kind of play. And I mean, there may be some of the interventions there, but definitely it's pretty different.
1: Okay. hmm what are some specific goals that you might work on with a family?
0: The goals are pretty much how you would work with any family in therapy. It's just the techniques that would be different. okay So I would be you know in, a, in an earpiece with a parent coaching them on how to interact with that child during that playtime setting. So they would be playing with the child and I would be coaching them on maybe what to say, um, our boundaries to set things like that. So it's not mainly how we're doing it differently other than the intervention is different.
1: Okay. And you're not in the room, right?
0: Not. Well, sometimes you may be, depending on the space the person has, Okay. But you can definitely do it online through Zoom. You can definitely do it through the two-way mirror, which a lot of people have. And then there's sometimes where the person is in the room, but they're not interacting with the two individuals. So they're in a, you know, maybe in a corner over here Mm -hmm. doing, you know, the the talking through the earpiece. So yeah, it just depends on the space the person
1: has. Okay. So is it like giving parents ideas of how to give instructions, how to have more kind of control.
0: Yeah. And deal with the behavior differently. So setting those hard boundaries with the child, speaking to the child differently, providing praise for what the child does right. So doing all of that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can definitely see some overlap with ABA.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. And is this like a long-term therapy that people do, or do they just go for a few months at a time? Does it just depend on what their needs are?
0: It's definitely where you have to pass through all of the protocols and you graduate. I wouldn't necessarily say long-term because once you master your levels and you go to the next level, and then once you've mastered that level, then you are complete and you have um, the skill set to show that you don't need the therapy anymore. So you have to show, I don't want to give Too much away for parents because then they'll go in and try to master it on the first day. Okay. (laughs) You have to master certain skills that the therapist is teaching you. And once you've mastered those skills and you're set to do it on your own, you've proven that you don't need assistance of the therapist anymore.
1: Hmm. And do insurance companies fund for these services too? I am not
0: quite sure because I don't take insurance at all. So I'm not sure about that.
1: Okay. Got it. This is really interesting. Has this kind of therapy been around for a while?
0: It has. They even have a a teacher one for teachers. It's TCIT. Okay. So it has been around. I know a lot of my colleagues have been trained for a long time in it. So yeah.
1: Did you get your degree in PCIT or how does the training go?
0: No, it's a certification. Okay. So, you know, get your degree in whatever counseling field that you may be in and then you yeah, do the certification process. It's a year long certification process that you have to do, which I'm in the year long process. So technically I'm the interning of it right now where you have the families come in and you prove your skills as a therapist. So, yeah, you take the, um, the training. Mine was a two day split with three days focusing on one uh, aspect of it and two days focusing focusing on another aspect of it. So you go through a year-long process with a supervisor uh, for your internship. You turn in tapes, so they're making sure you're getting all of those skills to make sure you can be a good
1: PCIT uh, therapist.
0: So, yeah, it's a certification, like your play therapy certification that um, you get. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So you have your private practice, your special education advocacy, consultation services. (laughs)
0: Yeah, it it seems like a lot. It's all under the umbrella of autism in black, but the uh, PCIT is separate from autism in black. That is definitely private practice. And then autism in black does all the other things.
1: Yeah. And you're also hosting a conference coming up in April. I
0: am. And I'm very excited about it. It is the inaugural virtual Autism and Black Conference. So of course, we're catering to Black parents out there who are needing the information. And we're also catering to healthcare professionals who need the information on how to interact with us and provide better services to us as parents and then to our children as well. So it's happening. April 1st through 4th, completely online. April 1st is a VIP day. And then the 2nd, 3rd, or 4th are for everybody. Um, We have a phenomenal lineup. We have Marina Kay, who is the co-author for All the Weight of Our Dreams book. She is autistic. She presents Widely everywhere, we have Dr. Linda McGee as well as Dr. Marilyn Montero. People may know her because she created the MIGDIS that is a... uh Autism assessment, kind of like the ADOS. So she's created one that is more parent friendly. <laughs>
1: oh, great. Yeah.
0: And then we have Dr. Anne Louise Lockhart, who specializes in so much, and she's going to be talking about emotional regulation. We have a play therapist there. We, I mean, we have so many people that are going to be talking about such great things. So I'm very excited. Joy Johnson, who was a guest on this podcast. She's Mm -hmm. one of our presenters, so it's going to be great.
1: Yeah, cool. So we'll post a link to your website on our show notes so people can sign up for that. Thank you. All right, Marie, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you offer non-Black professionals when working with Black families?
0: Oh, one is to be aware of your biases. That is the most important thing because they enter the room. We know they enter the room as clinicians regardless. So being aware of them and how they can impact what you're doing is so important. So you have to do the work on yourself before you get into the rooms and and dealing with communities that are different from you. So that is the most important thing. Then after that, we could talk about everything else that comes along. But first and foremost, being aware of your own biases and doing your own work.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you're just going to be helping the families that you're advocating for anyway.
0: Exactly. Everyone's
1: on the same page.
0: Exactly. You're doing more help than harm, because you are definitely providing a unique service for all of the families. And like, no family is the same. So you should be going in with the goal that you're going to have to get to know this family and provide a different service from any other family anyway.
1: Mm -hmm. That's great advice. Okay, so how can people learn more about you?
0: Um, so, you can go to my website, which is www.autismandblack.org. If you're looking for the conf- uh, conference website, it's slash conference. On Facebook, I'm Autism in BLK. On Instagram, I'm Autism in Black. The same on Twitter and the same on Clubhouse. And you can also email me at info at autismandblack.org org. And then there's the Autism in Black podcast, which is available on most podcast streaming
1: platforms. All right. We'll put links to all of those in our show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much, Maria, for sharing your story with us and your perspectives. I think the work that you're doing to educate families and help break that stigma is so important so that they can get the help they need.
0: Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. (laughs)
1: Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Although recent debates have questioned whether implicit bias successfully predicts discriminatory behavior, most critics agree that both implicit and explicit bias are constructs still worth exploring. According to Dr. Jack Glasser, a social psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, our brains are wired to put things into boxes when it comes to all kinds of categories, including race, ethnicity, and gender. Glasser advises that by highlighting the influence of unconscious stereotypes, people can start to recognize the limits of their objectivity. Maria offers really good advice for professionals to examine their own biases when working with black families. Aside from that, practicing cultural humility when stepping into someone else's space, whether it's a different country, another classroom, or a family's home, will help in building rapport and gaining mutual respect. By asking questions and not imposing our own values onto others, we can better understand their needs and develop plans that will yield better outcomes. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community.
0: You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.